0: Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rural University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek.
1: And I'm Dan.
0: And in today's episode, we are going to take a slight break from our ongoing series to introduce a new series, our Lab Abnormality Consult Series. Dan, do you want to tell us a little bit about what we envision with this micro series? Yeah, sure. So, what we want this to be is episodes that just come in
1: every now and then, you know, during our other series that are, that are going to be ongoing throughout this. And what we want to do with these episodes is take a look at consults that we get really frequently on the benign hematology service. Consults related to an abnormal lab value of some kind. This is something we see both on the inpatient setting and in the outpatient clinic. And to be honest, it's one of the things that got me interested in benign hematology in the first place. Uh, We really have the role of solving mysteries in the hospital a lot of the times people have a persistent abnormal lab value and it's our job to figure out exactly what it what it means maybe it's a a new diagnosis of leukemia maybe it's an undiagnosed bleeding disorder maybe it's a lab error it all goes through us
2: yeah I'm really excited for for doing this and and really you know one of the cool things is right now I'm on service on benign hematology consults and I'm talking to the residents we're going through the scenarios that we're going to provide to all of our listeners so frequently And I just thought to myself, wow, there's not a good resource for this, and we're going to provide that for you, and we're really going to break down a couple of interesting cases and really give you all of the nuts and bolts of everything you need to know.
0: Absolutely, guys. Well, so without further ado, let's roll that show.
2: Guys, how are we feeling today? I'm doing good, man. You know, I I think that, um, so so I appreciate the reviews that we've gotten, especially that review about Fresca. Fresca is an excellent drink. I do have another drink recommendation. I think people probably think I've got major issues by just like jumping around from drink to drink, but now we're going Spindrift. I mean, Costco, you can get a gigantic case of Spindrift with grapefruit flavor, delicious. Lime flavor, very good. And my favorite, the lemon flavor. So I'm a Spindrift guy, kind of, kind of a guy now, uh, but Dan, wh- what's up with you?
1: Yeah, I gotta say, I am a grapefruit man. So if you ever have extra grapefruits, you know, or throw them. No, I, I, I am still on this like fitness kick that I've been on, and so yeah, just uh, very, very sore at the moment, but um, it's it's a good kind of sore. I actually kind of enjoy that feeling.
2: Yeah, I mean, eventually you're gonna be like Ronak and wake up at, at Ronak, when do you wake up like four in the morning and go work out every day?
0: Yeah, like 4.20, you know, get that in before the sun rises and that way no one can bother me. There is never a calendar invite for a meeting at 4.20 in the morning. So it is the only time to be completely uninterrupted throughout the day. So you got to do what you got to do. And Vivek, I think my little tidbit that I want to share, I think you'll be proud of me. I may have gone as low as I've ever gone with my choice of reality television. I convinced myself that it was worth finishing the entire season of the perfect match
2: yeah that's that's really low dude
0: i at times question what on earth i was doing because it just it is not i like reality tv but this is like next level it was it was just bad and i I don't want to give away any spoilers i almost spoiled the ending but um I wasn't sure if you'd be proud, (laughs) or if you were going to be disappointed. It sounds like you're kind of leaning towards the disappointed side.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud that you, you, you jumped into reality television, but that's just, it's just, it's too trashy. It's too trash. There are better trashy reality TV shows out there that aren't quite as trashy. The trash level is too far on the trashy spectrum. I know that made a lot of sense to everybody, but let's let's get into the show because people are sick of (laughs) this time.
0: That's that sounds like a good plan. So I actually have a case for you all. Since I was recently working uh, a weekend a couple weeks ago, and I happened to be covering the the benign hematology service. And so we had a a consult that came in on a Saturday morning. um, And I wanted to kind of use that as a discussion point to talk about where we go from here, because this is a common scenario that we do see on the consult service, and that is the consult for a leukocytosis. Um, And so the scenario is that we have a 56-year-old female. She has a past medical history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes. She does use tobacco and has for several years. She presented to the ER with shortness of breath. She was admitted for a COPD exacerbation with a questionable pneumonia as well. Her vitals at the time of admission were stable. She had a hemoglobin of 14, a white blood cell count of 25, and platelets of 340. Her BMP was completely unremarkable. So she was in the hospital for a few days. She started feeling better with treatments with things like Duonebs. She was started on azithromycin. But despite her feeling better her white blood cell count four days into her hospital stay continued to remain at 23. And so we were consulted by the primary team to weigh in on her leukocytosis. And so that's what I want to discuss today is how do we approach this situation?
1: Yeah, I gotta say this is, as you mentioned, something that comes up all the time. It's Important to work through all the different possibilities because the differential diagnosis for leukocytosis is incredibly broad, and and that goes for even subdividing a leukocytosis into the particular cell type, white cell type that's elevated. Going through that differential cell count and seeing all the different subtypes of white cell, any number of those being elevated can mean a different thing. So, um, really glad that we're covering this.
0: So, I guess my first question is. Can we just talk a little bit about leukocytosis conceptually? Like, you know, when patients mount a a response to an infection, that white count rises pretty quickly. And so that does mean, at least I interpret that to mean, that these cells are almost poised and ready to go at the site of need. So can we talk a little bit about like a background about, you know, some of the the mechanics of how all that functions?
2: Yeah, definitely. So I think the key thing here is that Only a small fraction of the total white blood cells in our body are measured on the CBC that's reporting out. At any given time, about 90% of our white blood cells are in storage. What we mean by this is they're either hanging out in the bone marrow, whether they're maturing or going through different phases or just waiting to be released, or they're what we call marginated. Marginated literally means stuck to the blood vessel walls. We always talk about demargination of neutrophils with steroids, that they jump off the vessel walls and stress and things like that. So most of the time, they're just waiting, ready to hang out, ready to go when we need them. The remaining few percent of white blood cells are freely floating around in circulation. So this means at the time of the insult, remember that we have a rapid rise in these cells in circulation as the marginated cells are suddenly knocked loose by stress hormones and cytokines. And this is what we call the demargination. And a majority of those will be neutrophils, which is why when somebody's sick, we often see a neutrophilic predominant leukocytosis.
1: Yeah, that's really important to keep in mind. Because as impressive as our bone marrow is, seeing somebody's white count jump from normal to like three times the upper limit of normal, that's the effect of demargination, right? That's the effect of these white cells getting knocked loose and going into circulation. As good as our marrow is, it's not able to produce thousands and thousands of cells per microliter instantaneously.
0: And I don't know about you guys, but I think something for me that's really helpful when we're tasked this with this question, especially in light of what Dan said, where the different type of cell that is causing the white cell count elevation is going to change how we think about the patient and what our approach is going to be in that scenario Um, and so i always have to take a step back and remind myself of that of that tree that shows the lineage of a cell from the stem cell uh, all the way down to the fully differentiated cells Um, quite frankly to be completely honest with you all i ignored this every single time i studied for my step exam. But as a hematologist, I see the importance of needing to know this. And so, just really quickly, I just wanted to break that down for our listeners. So, listeners, remember that stem cells in the body will then differentiate into either a myeloid lineage or a lymphoid lineage. The myeloid lineage is made up of cells like platelets, red blood cells, and the white blood cells. And specifically, the types of white blood cells that are In the myeloid lineage are your basophils, your neutrophils, your eosinophils, and your monocytes. On the other end of that chart, if you can visualize it, and we'll certainly put this in our show notes, um, is the lymphoid cells. And and there we're talking mainly about our NK cells and our small lymphocytes. And so again, trying to keep this conceptually in your mind is important because it'll help you figure out what next steps need to happen, um, and, and what we need to be thinking about in our differentials based on the type of cell that's
2: abnormal. I, I think that's really important. And for me, I'm a really simple person. I think about lymphoid as B and T cells, and myeloid is literally everything else, including like myelocytes, metamyelocytes, blah, 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 blah. But basically, I think of lymphoid, B and T cells. And that's just for me, a, cheat, a, little, a little cheat shortcut, it makes it a little bit easier to digest.
1: And you also may hear people refer to these myeloid cells as granulocytes. And that's just because when you look at them under the microscope, you see little granules inside the cells. They're full of all sorts of fun things that these white cells can release to do their job. And so super important when you're working up at leukocytosis, first thing, if there isn't already a differential cell count to subdivide the white cells into these different subtypes, then go ahead and get that cooking while you start talking to the patient and getting some idea of the history.
2: Reminds me of our flow cytometry episode when we, when we talked about an elevated white blood cell count. The key thing was which white blood cells are high.
0: So Dan, speaking of the history, can you kind of walk us through what you ask your patients about when you're taking a history with someone that has a leukocytosis?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of important information you can get from the history uh, in this case. You first of all want to get an idea of what the chronicity of the problem is. If you have the luxury of seeing labs from this patient, from the recent past or distant past, take a look through those labs in detail. Try and determine if this is a long-term trend for the patient, if this is a white cell count that's been slowly creeping up over the past several months or years, or if this is truly an acute process. Or maybe it's an intermittent process. Maybe every few months they seem to have these spikes. It's important to correlate any of those changes with what's going on in the patient's health. So if there are clear hospitalizations and this person just happens to get infections every so often, and that's when their white cell count is high, that's important to know as well. And that gets into sort of the context of the present hospitalization or the present event. You want to know, you know, in this case, the patient had evidence of an infection. You want to know if that's been proven, if there's clearly evidence of infection, or if this is just something that was assumed or hypothesized at the onset of their illness, and you also want to review with the patient if they're having any localizing signs for infection. Is there a clear area of redness over their arm where there's a cellulitis, or is there an abscess somewhere? Beyond that, you want to talk to them about whether or not they are constitutional symptoms. What I mean by this are the fevers, chills, night sweats, things that speak to a more global inflammatory response in the body. That can be evidence of several different types of infection or something like a malignancy, some other inflammatory process. Beyond that, knowing a little bit more about the patient's general health is critical. So, looking over all their medications, getting a good picture of their chronic medical conditions, asking them about not just prescribed medicines, but over the counter supplements and over the counter meds, and this seems like it may be obvious, but it's important to ask, have they taken anything like a white blood cell growth factor, like GCSF? I, I have seen this before where I've been consulted on a patient who got Neulasta uh, just like the week before as a part of their chemo regimen, and their white count was like 35. Well, if they, if the referring physician had asked that question, I wouldn't have been consulted. And then looking out for medicines that we know can artificially or transiently raise the white cell count, like steroids or lithium, the the mood-modulating medicine.
2: And the next thing that's really key here, and and I liked how Dan laid that out for us, is that we also need to know a little bit more about the social history. One of the most common causes of an outpatient leukocytosis, which can, again, persist in the inpatient setting, is smoking and obesity. Smoking and obesity are somewhat inflammatory states, and they cause a chronic neutrophilic predominant leukocytosis. So those are just things that are important to know about these patients. The last thing I do want to say is that knowing if they have a spleen or not, patients with a splenectomy can have a higher white blood cell count, and you want to know when they got the splenectomy. So I think those are the two other critical factors in the social history and the surgical history that I wanted to mention.
0: Following up on that, as always, in addition to the history, the physical also matters, right? And so, given the fact that leukocytosis can be associated with different types of malignant hematologic disorders, you want to be paying attention to things like lymphadenopathy. You want to get really good at learning how to palpate spleens so that you can look for splenomegaly. And then, you also want to look for skin changes because patients with rashes. The rash can either be a manifestation of an underlying issue, or the rash may be in response to something like an allergic reaction, which could then result in an abnormal cell count. So these are things that you definitely want to pay attention to.
1: Yeah, the skin exam is is an often overlooked part of the hematologic evaluation. You have to, keeping the patient's modesty in mind, you do have to expose as much skin as you can to find these rashes, which may be hiding out in weird places. They can, like you said, either be evidence of something like a cutaneous T cell lymphoma. It could be something like a, an eosin- hyper eosinophilic syndrome. These will all be associated with rashes. And if you don't look, you're you're not going to find this important piece of medical evidence.
0: So, Dan, you mentioned before, you know, asking the lab to give you a differential. Can you walk us through a little bit of what your um, initial lab evaluation process looks like? Definitely.
1: Just like any other lab abnormality, an important step is making sure that wasn't a spurious result. So if there's a truly or markedly abnormal lab, it can be helpful to just repeat the lab test, make sure that it looks consistent with what you originally consulted for. And similarly, looking through the CVC to see if anything looks totally out of whack. Like if all of the counts are wildly high, that can be another clue that maybe something was a little bit off in the, uh, in the machine. You also wanna include a review of the peripheral blood smear. You know, I always talk about looking at the smear. In this case, you're gonna be looking for things like platelet clumps, which can be misinterpreted by the counter as a white cell, so that can artificially inflate the white cell count, although it's uncommon for it to happen in a really significant number. And you also wanna look for immaturity in the cells are there cells that look like they could be blasts in circulation? That really sends you down a whole other diagnostic pathway that involves you know, bone marrow biopsy as soon as possible, that sort of thing, flow cytometry. So um, seeing if there are blasts or if there are any cells that could be blasts is really important in helping differentiate a reactive process from a malignant process. Now, that said, you can see a small number of blasts in circulations when people are very strongly reacting to something like severe infection or like severe sepsis, for example. But blasts in circulation generally should raise alarm bells. And then also, is there any evidence of hemolysis of a secondary process related to some white cell problem? Uh, what I'm thinking of in this case is something like CLL chronic lymphocytic leukemia that can be associated with other changes in cell counts. Um, so again, even if you're just evaluating the white cells very important to remember to go through that peripheral smear in a systematic way so that you don't miss any other findings.
2: Yeah, Dan, I think that's another really important thing to just drive home is that many of these malignancies can have a perineoplastic of like an autoimmune hemolytic anemia. And remember in our anemia episode, we talked about how spherocytes is a common finding for autoimmune hemolytic anemia. So thinking about that, if you had The smudge cells that you think about with CLL and autoimmune hemolytic anemia, that's something that you want to think about. But again, these are very sort of off-the-wall cases, not something that you typically see in your everyday leukocytosis patient.
0: So let's say that we did that, we get the, the manual diff back, and I think what makes the most sense is that we just, for sake of discussion, maybe talk a little bit about what we're thinking based on which cell type is elevated and what the initial steps are in terms of workup. And of course, I suspect that we will have individual episodes and all these different pathologies down the line. But I think what I'm hoping that we can leave our listeners with, with the remainder of this episode, is at least a framework of how to think about these initially before you call your neighborhood hematologist to help you out. Um, And then, you know, in the future, we'll help equip our listener um, with the knowledge that they need to work that up and take it to the next step once a diagnosis has been confirmed. Does that sound okay? Yeah, it sounds great. So let's say that in this case, our lady had a neutrophil predominance. Um, So she had a neutrophilia that was confirmed. How would you go about thinking about this patient?
2: So neutrophilia is the most common thing that we'll see in patients with an elevated white blood cell count. So if we have a predominant neutrophil count, the first thing that comes to my mind is something like a leukemoid reaction. And what I mean by that is that the patient's sick and their bone marrow is churning out a lot of these myeloid lineage cells, not B and T cells necessarily, but things like myelocytes and metamyelocytes, the immature forms of things that have ultimately become neutrophils. That's the most common thing that happens when we see a neutrophilia. This can happen if a patient is sick in the hospital. This can happen if a patient has recently gotten steroids. And we see this very commonly. If somebody in the outpatient setting, if you had a prior baseline, and it's so key to ask the patient, hey, do you have a primary care doctor somewhere else if they're in the inpatient setting? And they had a normal prior baseline. They came in sick and had an elevated white count. The chance of a hematologic malignancy of high neutrophils is very, very low. The one thing that I think of with high neutrophils and what we call the left shift, quote-unquote, meaning those myelocytes, metamyelocytes, those myeloid cells, is something like a CML, and that's the one where we think about sending the BCR-ABLE testing. We think about that. I know in medical school you talked about ways to differentiate leukomoid versus not leukomoid, but it's really just think about the clinical history. If the patient doesn't have a gigantic spleen and they've been feeling well overall other than this infection they came in. The chance that they just popped up with CML with a minor white count elevation, what I mean by that like 20 to 30 range when they're sick, is very unlikely. When we see CML... We are thinking about patients who have these myelocytes, metamyelocytes, and neutrophils with white counts that are approaching over 100. A severe locomoid reaction from somebody with severe sepsis can approach the 80,000 range, and it will get better with time. When we think about something like CML... If you get above that 100,000 range and you're in like the 120, 150, 200, that's when we really think about a hematologic malignancy. And again, talking to your friendly pathologist, talking to somebody, looking at the smear, making sure there's no blasts is going to be critical in these situations.
1: And you know, CML and some of the other myeloproliferative neoplasms can non-specifically raise some of the granulocyte levels. So if you you are able to, it can be important to establish follow-up with these patients to just make sure that white cell count does resolve in the future. Otherwise, uh, if it seems to be a persistent abnormality or if it's going the wrong direction, if things are getting worse, then testing for BCR-ABLE mutation for CML and testing for the three most common mutations associated with the other myeloproliferative neoplasms, the JAK2 mutation, the Calreticulin mutation, and the MPL mutation that, that can be a, another important step in your workup. That's usually further down the road. That's not something I'm necessarily sending off in the inpatient setting.
0: That's that's fairly helpful. So So you guys said, again, you're not only characterizing the type of cell, but you're also looking for immaturity in those cells, the degree of elevation, have you ruled out other causes? And if you've done all of that, And there is still a concern for potential malignancy, thinking about things like CML and sending a BCR-ABL or a myeloproliferative neoplasm such as polycythemia vera or myelofibrosis and considering sending something like a JAK2, a CALR, and a MPL test. And of course, at the end of the day, as Dan's alluding to, perhaps a bone marrow biopsy may be in the patient's future, but certainly we want to spare them that if it doesn't seem very likely. So guys, what if we change the cell type that was the predominant problem child? Let's say that it was an eosinophilic predominant. So they had an eosinophilia. To my knowledge, these are a little bit more rare than the neutrophilias, no?
1: Yeah, that's right. I actually, I love eosinophilia. I I just think it's a fascinating problem. And uh, there's a couple of reasons for that we'll get into. But uh, just to lay down some definitions here, eosinophilia is when there is an absolute eosinophil count Of greater than 500 per microliter, or it'll look like 0.5 in most uh, electronic medical records, the way things are reported. Hyper eosinophilia is when that peripheral count gets over 1500 per microliter. And what I think is so fascinating about eosinophils is when they're present in abundant enough numbers, they just cause trouble. They, They will be a problem just by their presence after they get beyond a certain level in most patients. So, uh, and when that happens, we call it the hyper eosinophilic syndrome. So that's uh, a hyper eosinophilia. So count of greater than fifteen hundred per microliter, technically on two occasions more than a month apart, and then evidence of end organ damage, and that can be, you know, cerebral dysfunction, uh, sort of cognitive dysfunction. It can be heart failure. Uh, skin rash is very common. GI symptoms. Uh, this these eosinophils they. Insinuate themselves in all sorts of different tissues and just non-specifically start rele- releasing these inflammatory mediators and can cause a lot of tissue damage. So you know, obviously, when a patient is in that hyperosinophilic syndrome realm, additional workup is is warranted. There's sort of a small number of things that do this. Among these are several primary hematologic processes. They include things like myeloproliferative neoplasms that involve the PDGFR-alpha fusion. Uh, It's basically a fusion protein that involves this platelet-derived growth factor receptor. It results in a constitutively active tyrosine kinase that uh, can cause massive proliferation of eosinophils. You do need to send that BCR-ABLE to to look for CML in the case of hyperosinophilia. You can send JAK2 mutation testing as well. And oftentimes you are going to end up doing a bone marrow biopsy. There are certain uh, uncommon lymphomas that can cause a secondary eosinophilia in this range.
2: Yeah, and one thing I really wanted to, to emphasize here is that the hyper eosinophilic syndrome is the thing that we're worried about, and there's a lot of different things that can cause these eosinophils to be elevated. And like Dan said, it can be this primary hematologic malignant process In many cases, what we're thinking about is that we are doing a bone marrow biopsy in these patients. So in many of these patients, you don't necessarily have to send all of these testing on the peripheral blood. If you're going to do the bone marrow, just send it off on the bone marrow specimens. But what we want to emphasize to those who are maybe new to hematology or maybe don't live hematology like we do If you see an elevated eosinophil count that's in that 1,000 to 1,500 range, it is very, very, very reasonable to consult a hematologist for them to look at it. And when we think about these cases, we want to prevent end-organ damage from hyper-eosinophilia, which is that hyper-eosinophilic syndrome caused by a variety of things. And when we mentioning that T-cell lymphoma, I want to be very clear here that this is a secondary process from that T-cell lymphoma. So we always want to think about things like that when we see this, but there are so many things that can cause it, and the differential is broad, and we'll go through that in a special eosinophilia episode later on.
1: last thing I want to mention is because there's a possibility that a patient could come in with evidence of end-organ damage, maybe they came in in heart failure with a rash all over their body, and they're uh, in some state of delirium you're worried that the eosinophils are causing a problem. We know that steroids very rapidly kill eosinophils. In fact, Addison's disease or or hypoproduction of cortisol causes an eosinophilia, but you don't wanna necessarily impact your diagnostic yield if you're gonna worry about a lymphoma, and of course you need to send off testing for estrongyloides before you blast somebody with steroids. If you need to acutely cite or reduce somebody, hydroxyurea is your friend. Uh, that can help us reduce that burden of eosinophils, but not necessarily compromise your diagnostic yield when it comes to looking for lymphoma later down the line.
2: And when the decision comes to do I start steroid or not, get a hematologist involved because it's a very complex decision.
0: Yeah, I, that's, I think I've seen two cases of hyper eosinophilic syndrome and the patients are really, really, really sick. And so um, it's just astounding because eosinophils are small but very mighty, clearly. Um, and certainly, we don't want to mess that around. So guys, taking this one step further then, so we talked about neutrophils, talked about eosinophils. What about basophils? I feel like we don't talk about basophils enough. So what would you think about if, if you saw a basophilia?
2: We really don't talk about basophils enough, and I want to keep this extremely simple. For the most part, if you have elevated basophils, this is something that we think of in maybe a chronic inflammatory state or a hypersensitivity reaction. Somebody's sick, their myeloid cells in their bone marrow are all maturing, so not the B and T cells, but everything else is just growing. But here's the kicker. Elevated basophils at a large number makes me think CML. If I have a left shift in a patient who comes in, the myelocytes, metamyelocytes, myeloid things, and I'm concerned for a chronic myeloid leukemia, one of the things I always look for is how many basophils I have. And if you have lots of basophils, what I mean by that, if you're the percentage of your white cells, if we're talking greater than 10% up into that 15% range, that level, I am always thinking CML, and that's a patient I want to send the BCR-ABLE test for and really think hard about that patient. So I wanted to keep it simple, basophilia, remember, always be cautious of CML, but we're talking greater than 10% is when I really, really get worried about it. And
0: then we really don't talk about the monocytes. So the similar idea, are we only, you know, how do we approach monocytosis?
1: Yeah, monocytes are are pretty cool. I will say that although this isn't necessarily something to think about when they're they're high, they do tend to precede the other granulocytes as people are recovering their counts in, in any sort of state of, of count depletion. But when they go high, it usually is uh, it usually is something related to a myeloproliferative neoplasm. Again, you can look for things like viral infection um, or other chronic infections, but once you've ruled that out or if you convince yourself that's not really a concern and they're persistently elevated, so we're talking absolute monocytes over 800 per microliter, that's where you do want to start thinking about the possibility of a myeloproliferative neoplasm, something like a chronic myelomonocytic leukemia or or other process. So sending off the PCR-ABLE, kind of low threshold to give that patient a bone marrow biopsy, just make sure that there isn't anything untoward going on in the marrow.
2: Yeah, Dan, I I really liked how we're talking about the fact that these things, if they're persistently elevated, and the other thing I want to mention is oftentimes if the basophils are out of proportion to the other elevated counts, or in this case, if the monocyte is out of proportion to like way higher than the neutrophils, higher than the lymphocytes, that is abnormal. Typically, we see proportional rises in all of these things with a neutrophil predominance.
0: And of course, I do want to make sure that we talk about the lymphocytes as well. But really quickly, it it does seem like, you know, in general, our initial approach is just think about what the differential would be based on what that cell normally fights, for lack of a better term. If you've ruled out all of those causes, then you are getting suspicious of one of these, these possible malignancies. And it seems like in general, at least as a rule of thumb, things like CML remain on the differential because again, these are myeloid lineage cells that are that are abnormal. And so things like BCR-ABL is something that's important to, to check for. And then in general, it also sounds like we have to keep uh, myeloproliferative neoplasms, again, in the myeloid lineage, in the back of our minds. So, th- you know, having somewhat of a of a threshold if you're suspicious for a neoplasm to do things like JAK2, Calr, and MPL.
2: Yeah, and and I think what I want to highlight with that is that when we have a patient with leukocytosis in the inpatient setting, it is totally okay if they just had an infection for their white count to be 80,000 and it slowly goes down to 60, 50, 40, and it may remain elevated for quite some time. It can take weeks before your blood counts normalize. Remember that over... 90% of your cells are just hanging out, waiting to be released when you have a severe infection. So it takes time for your body to regulate itself. So it's not something that we're saying somebody came in, they had bad sepsis or bad infection, send off all these tests. This is something that we're thinking of. The patients had an elevated leukocytosis after they got better for several weeks, maybe a month later, you recheck their labs and clinic and it's still elevated. That's when we get concerned.
0: Yeah, that's a great reminder. Now, Vivek, I loved the way that you simply described the lymphocytes before. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what would what we would be thinking about if we saw a predominant lymphocytosis as opposed to the myeloid lineage that we just talked about?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And here's the kicker. When I see lymphocytosis, I automatically assume until proven otherwise that this is a viral infection. It is most commonly associated with some form of a viral infection. In the same way, if you have a very low lymphocyte count, And I know we're not talking about low counts, but if you have a low absolute lymphocyte count, that makes me think of, let me make sure this patient doesn't have HIV or something like that. But in general, when I think of a lymphocytosis, I'm thinking of a reactive viral infection, the role of the B and the T cells. In rare occasions, we can have a malignancy associated with a lymphocytosis. That is going to be typically something like elevated B cells causing CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. This disease is a very, in general, can be a very indolent course, and it's not something that we necessarily need to treat like we do acute leukemias. When we think of we need to know now, we have to treat now. When I think about elevated lymphocytes, I can get concerned about a CLL, but in that setting, the lymphocyte count has to be greater than 5,000. So if I'm worried about a malignancy like CLL, I'm thinking my lymphocyte count needs to be greater than 5,000. And smudge cells on a smear can be totally normal and it could be a smear artifact. So just because you see smudge cells, do not assume CLL. Always, again, when you're thinking about is this CLL or not, recheck the counts when the patient gets better from their acute illness.
1: Yeah, and you know, thinking about the possibility of a clonal process, it is a lot easier to determine if a B cell population is clonal than it is a T cell population. But there's a way to do both. So, as Vivek mentioned, for B cells, they—if um, you want to look into this—flow cytometry can tell you if they're all expressing the same light chain, uh, and so you can look for that kappa or lambda restriction in a B cell population. With T cells, you actually have to look at the T-cell receptor gene, and so uh, just check with your lab, see what the possibilities are for sequencing the T-cell receptor gene for specific clonal T-cell receptor gene rearrangements. That's how you kind of go about looking for it in that lineage.
2: And remember, listeners, check out our flow cytometry episode, where we really talk about how we use flow cytometry to characterize these lymphocytes. It'll really help you drive this point home, but I really can't emphasize enough we are really thinking an absolute lymphocyte count greater than 5,000. Otherwise, we actually have something like that's equated to an MGUS of B-cells called a a monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis, which is extremely indolent. And it's just a slightly elevated lymphocyte count that patients have chronically.
0: This is really helpful. And so, you know, I I think what I'm taking away from this discussion is that assuming that your patient looks well— and they don't look acutely ill, and they have this persistent leukocytosis while they're in the hospital, it is okay to wait until they are discharged from the hospital, feeling better, more stable, before we recheck their counts. And if at that time things are still elevated, then by all means we should do a further investigation. But in the acute setting, if someone isn't looking so well, despite, you know, their infection is under control, you've ruled out all these things from from taking a, a stellar history after listening to this episode, um, then there is certainly some things that you want to consider doing. In general, and, and by all means, listeners, go back and listen to when we talk about the individual cell types, but remember what the cell of origin is, right? So if there are If there is a predominant myeloid elevation, you need to be thinking about diseases that affect the myeloid lineage, so something like a CML or a myeloproliferative neoplasm, whereas, you know, simply put, on the lymphoid side, B and T cell abnormalities you want to be thinking about as well if that is a predominant cell type. Um, And there, you know, as Vivek said, a count greater than than 5,000 lymphocytes And considering something maybe like a CLL, and then in rare cases, there's other types of leukemias that you can also look into. But again, the workup that you do will help parse out whether or not leukemia is a more likely scenario.
2: Yeah, such a great summary, and I just want to emphasize, and I can't emphasize this enough, is that it is okay for a patient who's sick, who has an infection, to have elevated counts. We are talking about persistent Elevation that we often need to recheck in the outpatient setting. We don't need to be jumping the gun to think this person who just came in with pneumonia now suddenly developed cancer. That the pretest probability for that is very, very low, and we have to keep that in mind.
0: Well, I will certainly have to let you guys know what happened. She's scheduled to see one of our hematologists uh, in the outpatient setting later this week. So I'm sure repeat labs will be done. We'll see what they show. I'm certainly keeping my fingers crossed and hoping for the best for her all right guys well i think that wraps up another fantastic discussion i'm so glad that we had this talk just because this comes up all the time um and so unless there's any final thoughts i think we're we're all done for today
2: all right guys we'll see you later
1: all right peace
2: see you later